Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Trisha Burke, licensed clinical social worker who's in private practice in Washington. Really psyched to have you here today, Trisha. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So excited too. And I know you're here on vacation, and I don't know how cold it is in Washington right now, but um, thank you for coming in from the warm, sunny weather outside into my air-conditioned office and speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's very cold actually in Washington, although we are having a nice fall. So it's uh, it's great to be here for the weather and to see you. Yes, it's yes. It's been so a we, long time. We go way back. Yes. Right? And you were in practice here at one time and we got to know each other as colleagues and really enjoyed that. And it's wonderful to see you again. Oh, thanks, Aaron. So um, Tricia, you're here today to speak with us about this topic of highly sensitive people and empaths. There's a lot to say about this. I'm really interested and excited to hear what you have to say. And I think to begin with, though, I'd like to hear a bit about your background and what made you interested in this topic. So let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to in your professional career, your personal life that brought you to this. And let's go from there. Well, I discovered this Mid-career, it was actually after I moved from Chicago to Hawaii in 2007, and a series of events started to happen that really opened my eyes to having these gifts my entire life, but they manifested in anxiety and depression and all sorts of things. And so I, I started to try to make sense of what this was, and at that time, all I had at least exposed to me, was The Highly Sensitive Person by Dr. Elaine Aaron. So it was, these gifts were revealed to me mid-practice, I would say. And so as a result, then I started to use the tools and learn more about this. And then it led me to discovering Dr. Judith Orloff's work as an empath. And that's where things really took off. And then the next thing you know, empaths and highly sensitive people were showing up as most of my clients. I see. So they were they drawn to you or were you drawn to them? Well, that's always the mystery question. Right. I think life is a mirror, right? So uh, in the early days, I my practice was about relationships. I wanted to understand why we do what we do in relationships, how to have healthy relationships. And so I marketed myself more at that point in regards to that. But even before I even mentioned being an empath or a highly sensitive person, by just being so immersed in the world, it seemed to just naturally attract highly sensitive people and empaths. And I started to realize that there was a trend and I referenced the tests that Dr. Elaine Aaron and Dr. Judith Orloff have on their sites. And then I started to see that a large portion of my clients that were coming in in later days as I was nurturing my own gifts were empaths or highly sensitive people. So it's interesting you've referred to your traits, I suppose, as a highly sensitive person and empath as gifts. And I like that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more what makes them gifts for you. Well, so for me, I realized that 
I've been highly intuitive all my life mm. and had psychic gifts. So I would get premonitions. I would, you know, have dreams that would happen the following day. Uh, I would feel other people's feelings. I would feel their physical symptoms at times. And so I actually have learned because of Dr. Judith Orloff's work to really claim them as gifts because really before I had that awareness, they would really be detrimental. I mean, that they would, they would be very hard. You had mentioned that you had experienced some depression, some anxiety, it sounds like, at some point in your life because of being an empath, being a highly sensitive person, uh, there, there can be some impacts on you that could be difficult, I suppose. Yes. You know, I've had a history of really severe anxiety disorders, you know, and, and you've been witness to that and, and have been very helpful. <laughs> very <laughs> endearing from my, <laughs> my point of view. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but at those worst junctures, uh, you know, they were very debilitating as any mm. anxiety disorder is. And so looking back, I do believe my anxiety disorders, the bouts of them that would come about, that they would be related now hindsight looking back to me either being in a relationship or something that I was just feeling too overwhelmed with but I couldn't make sense of it but it was the way for my body and my mind to try to purge everything that was either holding me down or I just in times when I was highly functioning I think that I would get exposed to something get overstimulated and then the anxiety would hit and so that's where now I can ask myself, is this my anxiety or is this someone else's? I see. So we will explore that more during our interview here today because it sounds like people who are highly sensitive people can see their personality as, as a gift, that it helps them become more empathetic and understanding of other people and kind of channel that in a way that's helpful, but also can be difficult for them to live with. And we'll explore that a lot more. In your particular work as a therapist, how has that been helpful for you with your patients? Well, the biggest bonus as a therapist with this is when I'm sitting with a patient and they're not accessing their feelings or they're numbing out or they're, say, laughing, and all of a sudden I'm feeling an overwhelming sadness that's a difficult emotion for me to feel, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, so when I feel that sadness, I check in with it. And time and time again, I will say to my client, I see that you're laughing, but I'm wondering if there's sadness. And as I say that, I picture the sadness leaving my body and really lovingly and compassionately giving it back to my client. And the next thing you know, consistently, they start bawling. Because underneath that is sadness. Now we all know in therapy, when we see the laughter, you could go into your head and say, okay, this is incongruent with how you probably should be feeling. But I actually feel their sadness in where I could start crying for them. And I actually call this, I don't know if anyone else does, emotional hoarding. We probably all do that for people, like in a codependent way. But I, if I start to feel their sadness, then I take away their processing. So that's where as a therapist, really being in tune with what's mine and what's not and giving that back to a client. Sure. When I was in training, I, I recall 
referring to these kinds of things as transference and countertransference, but I, I think you're taking it to a whole other level of empathy and understanding here that goes way beyond the old psychodynamic definitions of those things. Absolutely. I actually can be very clear because I'm as much as I can be in this this area here, I traditionally was taught in a very Western model. And that to me was always very restricting and very shaming. And so I do know there is a qualitative difference between the countertransference or the transference. I mean, it really, there's no doubt that I have to be mindful of that. This actually is, like you said, a whole new level where, and I'll give you an example. So I check myself at a baseline. So I'm say I'm getting ready for work. I'm on my way to the office. And I feel this surge of anxiety. And sometimes I forget, say, if it's a new client coming in or even not a new client. But I get into the office and I'm having this anxiety. And I check in with myself. And when my client sits down and, you know, checking in with them, I will ask them, how do you feel? coming in or how are you feeling coming in whether it's a new client this typically happens with new clients and of course they're going to say most of the time oh god I'm so anxious and as soon as they tell me that I can give them back their anxiety because usually I'm not anxious when a new client comes in I mean I you know there's times in my early career I'm more excited I think so it's like you put a pin in a balloon and take away that anxiety, and then you've also done that for the client of like, oh, gosh, absolutely, entering therapy for the first time and telling your secrets to a stranger sure. is absolutely anxiety-producing, and then that clears the room. Sure, terrifying for many people. Yes. So you are keying into that uh, very clearly for people and helping them label, understand their emotions, and then reflecting it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Tricia, before we move any further in this, I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of terms here that, to be honest, like I'm just learning about some of these myself for the first time. This whole concept of highly sensitive people and empaths is something I've heard about, but the terms are still a little confusing to me. And I think maybe if we could just talk about some of them a little more specifically, that would help for the conversation, if that's okay. Absolutely. So uh, first of all, when it comes to a highly sensitive person, how would you define a highly sensitive person? What exactly is a highly sensitive person look like? Well, and I always refer back to Dr. Elaine Aaron's site, which is hsperson.com, and there's a test that you can take. And that was the first thing I did when I started to really recognize there's something more going on here. And that's where you really can assess your uh, sensitivity level in that quiz. So I think there's 22 questions, and I think I have 21 out of 22. And with the highly sensitive person, it will be the sensitivity level is, it's very extreme than just being, you know, sensitive, you know. So I think the criteria is that they're very passionate, they're they're very in tune with others. And I hope I'm answering this right because I'm really at the point where since I'm an empath, I realized that being an empath takes being a highly sensitive person further mm -hmm. where you really internalize sadness or happiness or you actually feel it in the body where a highly sensitive person does not 
take it to that level. They, you know, they don't let it drain them for days on end or get physically ill, those kind of things. So a highly sensitive person has high sensitivity on a number of different areas. And maybe you could give us a few examples of what might be on this test to tell whether or not a person is an HSP, but the empath is actually feeling them on a much deeper level. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so with a highly sensitive person, they're very, one of the questions would be very moved by arts and, and music. They can move into that and just be so moved by it. They could startle easily. They are very sensitive to violent films. And some of these also are on the empath test, but the like I said, the empath piece does take it much further. So it's nice to distinguish if you are a highly sensitive person using a lot of those same tools, but knowing if you're if you're different than an empath. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I imagine some empaths are probably highly sensitive people, also, right? Yes. So you can be. My understanding is you can be an empath and a highly sensitive person, but you can't be a highly sensitive personal, you know, and an empath, if that makes sense. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, and then, um, I know these maybe sound like very simple and dumb questions, but when we hear, when we think of just being a person who's a sensitive person, because you hear a lot of people talking about, oh, he's, he's sensitive, she's sensitive, a person's sensitive. Is there a way a person can be sort of a sensitive person, but not be an HSP? I think so. I mean, there, there's no doubt. And again, I think these things are all on a spectrum. Sure. Dr. Judith Orloff, actually, I think one of the questions on one of the tests, now that I'm looking at this, is do people call you sensitive or are you shunned for your sensitivity? Because that is, a, if someone calls somebody, someone sensitive, I do believe that's offensive you know, for someone who is sensitive. And, mm-hmm. and Judith Orloff talks about that a lot. And that's a cue to say, boy, I, I need to look, you know, at the highly sensitive person or an empath and see if I am one of these. But that is something that shows up a lot in Dr. Judith Orloff's work and Dr. Elaine Aaron's work as well, is that's a cue of being sensitive. And that would be just a personal choice if you want to explore that because you would know gosh, this keeps showing up for me over and over being called sensitive. Right. And and I think that's a really important point. Like there's almost a, I think it seems like a stigma around being called sensitive. Like you hear people say, oh, you're too sensitive. You're, you know, you're, you're just too sensitive, toughen up or whatnot. And that I'm, I'm guessing is just kind of a nightmare statement for an HSP. I mean, it is. I, it is because it's really offending I think of the very nature sure. of someone who is it's a temperament sure you know so it, it really is offensive and it is something again being a sensitive person you internalize sure. we take everything personally right and it's sort of a denial of who you are as a person it sounds like yeah so, yeah and then on the other end Trisha what would be the difference between, say, a person who would be considered an empath and an empathetic person? So empathy is a, a typical human emotion. Not that all humans <laughs> demonstrate yes. a lot of empathy, <laughs> but uh, many do. Uh, so how, uh, how is one empathetic and not an empath? 
So I like with, I'll be referring, as you clearly can hear here, with Dr. Judith Orloff's work is there's an empath spectrum. And on one side of the spectrum of zero empathy is what you have narcissists and sociopathic where there's just, there's no empathy. And so as you go to the far right, then you have your empath, empaths or you have your highly sensitive people. So it's actually a spectrum of empathy. So I think of how you are. I mean, I just make this assumption because you're so empathic. I mean, I have come to you in so many (laughs) moments of like, ah, and you really can access that empathy, but you don't take it on. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a fair assessment of me. Yes. Yes, Thank you. (laughs) And your patients benefit from this extremely. Let's talk a little bit about how a person becomes an HSP or an empath. I mean, are they born with these personality traits? Do they develop? What creates this type of personality trait and pattern that we see in some people like you? So according to both of these top people and one highly sensitive person being Dr. Elaine Aaron and Dr. Judith Orloff, who's a psychiatrist and an empath and is doing the majority of this work, they both say several things. So either you're born with this and it's a temperament, you know, you open up your eyes and the world just, you absorb it. There's genetics is another theory. There's childhood trauma and abuse. So if you grow up in an abusive household or with an alcoholic parent, that your, the defenses that a child would normally have become so thinned out. I don't know if that's the word, but they become really annihilated if you think about it. So if you're in a supportive household and granted there's, you know, that's on a spectrum too, but if you have parents that really can nurture the sensitivity and really be in tune with the child's sensitivity, then those layers don't get so, they can actually be built and nurtured. But that's that's another theory. So temperament, genetics, childhood trauma. You hear the classic stories of, we've had many patients who have had parents and families of origin where they were constantly on guard and cautious because of the behavior of their parents, say an alcoholic father or mother who would come home and who knows what their mood might be like if they were drinking or if they weren't drinking. Mm -hmm. And so there was a great need for them to anticipate what the mood and behavior of their, their family might be. I wonder if that sort of having to be in that environment, having to be overly tuned with the environment around you could contribute to that. Yes. And here's, I'm thinking of someone and it's actually a friend of mine and she has siblings, but she's a highly sensitive person and she's not an empath. So we actually were able to distinguish this. And her siblings were not affected by some of the things that happened growing up. And she got it all. So it really funneled to her being a sensitive person and being traumatized growing up. And then as an adult, you start to recreate that as we all know, whether Mm -hmm. you're highly sensitive or not until you start to do that healing work. So that's why it's critical for anyone who's had childhood trauma to do that healing. And then they can also work on daily healing as well, because Dr. Orloff always says we're chronically being traumatized as empaths. I mean, we will pick up Mm -hmm. if we're not doing really good Mm self-care, we're picking up on so many things. So we're in this chronic state of trauma until we really can 
utilize good self-care skills. That's an ongoing basis. Sure. I wonder if that, that sort of sounds to me a little bit like, I don't know, somebody with PTSD who's constantly being triggered by reminders and just having a hard time coping and dealing with them. So I, I'm supposing with an empath being in situations and relating to people where there are triggers that are traumatizing because they, they activate the emotions in a way that's hard to handle. Yes. So for me to, you know, worked a lot on my own childhood trauma. So once, you know, a big part of that is healed, then at least that's not being activated along with the current trauma. So I'm not being, it's not this accumulative effect. And I think that's where chronic illness can come in, severe anxiety disorders can come in, all of those things. And again, you could say this without an empath or a highly sensitive person, but we're talking about someone who's really more prone to mm -hmm. that chronic re-traumatization. I imagine like just a class as therapists, we're constantly working with people to understand how their childhood and their background is triggering and infecting them and trying to separate out early experiences with what's going on currently. That's more difficult for somebody who's a highly sensitive person or an empath. It is, and maybe this is a place that I can mention. One of the things for empaths, their targets for narcissists, uh, yeah. chronic talkers, drama queens, because we're so sensitive and we want to save the world. Sure. You know, it's, oh my gosh, we could just, you know, feel this pain. And so I see a lot of people involved with these narcissists and then the re-traumatization that happens with that. So it's sifting out all sorts of things as you create an awareness as the patient is able to create awareness. So if a therapist can either rule out or rule in whether that person is a highly sensitive person or an empath, at least they can work with that piece. It's an additional piece to work with, and it can beef up, I think, the self-care that's really required. It almost makes it mandatory. It's, it, it becomes, okay, I need to use this anyway, so let's use it with what I mean. It's, it's challenging when you're dealing with those difficult personalities, but just the awareness alone really can be healing in itself. Well, that segues perfectly into the next section that I <laughs> wanted to talk about with you, which has to do with how HSPs and empaths function in the world. And I have several different areas here that are interesting to discuss. And the first one was relationships. And you started talking about that. What you said made perfect sense that you have somebody who's a giver and somebody who's a taker, that that's sort of a match made in heaven for one and a match made in hell for the yes. other. And so I think that's what you were getting at. With that a little bit, with an HSP empath, who makes a good partner for them? That's a great question. Someone who really has done some work or has a very grounded temperament who can really honor the needs of their partner. As you know, Erin, I married later in life, which looking back, I thought it was commitment issues and all these other things. And, and come to find out, empaths need so much alone time that I really believe being an empath was why I waited so long until I was really ready. And luckily, I married a wonderful man who 
is more of a highly sensitive person, but with my empath part, he's able to work with me. So I need someone that gives me the alone time, that safe communication to say, I love you, but I need this day alone. Dr. Orloff suggests sleeping in separate beds, sometimes having different places. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's more of an extreme, but some people have to do that. And I know many empaths that do. I don't, but there's moments where I will need to sleep in a different bedroom for whatever reasons, just for self-care purposes, not because I'm in an argument with my husband. Right. So it sounds like first and foremost, having a partner who understands all of those things. That's absolutely necessary. If you don't, it would be a constant battle and cause more suffering. Sure. And I thought it was interesting what you said about getting married later in life and thinking, oh, do I have commitment issues or whatnot? But it sounds to me like it was important for you. It was like self-care. Like I better not get into a relationship too soon until I figured out what exactly it is I need in order to be safe and have a partner who is compatible with that. Hindsight, I can say that. I think intuitively the relationships that I was in, and again, I was playing out my own stuff clearly, so I don't dismiss, I I will take ownership for those relationships. But looking back, because I am highly, highly intuitive, I knew that those People were not going mm-hmm. to work out on some level, I think at some point during the relationship. And so that for me was good information as I look back on it. And let me guess, you didn't want to leave them because you didn't want to hurt their feelings. Exa- or, <laughs> I, or it was just unhealthy. It was feeding that caretaker right, part, right. you know, and I have abandonment stuff too. So, you know, it was probably loaded, but you're right. I mean, it was that care, it was the caretaker part. You know, that, you know, I do mm-hmm. want to save the world. Empaths do want to save the world, which mm-hmm. we can't, by the way. And that's always a nice reminder to hear Dr. Judith Orloff say this. So. Sure. So that's romantic relationships, and that makes a lot of sense. How about friendships and other people out there in the world that a an empath or an HSP may have, uh, friends, coworkers? What works and what doesn't work? in terms of those kinds of relationships? Those are great questions because they truly will impact someone's life. So for me to go to concerts or to high, you know, crowded places, over, too much overstimulation really shuts an empath or a highly sensitive person down. So if you have a friend or your coworkers want to go out for happy hour, you have to really know, can I say no? which you can, or can you leave early? You know, setting yourself up so your boundaries are really strong. So, you know, I've had great friends that they like to go out a lot and it's exhausting for me and for other people who get energy from going out to dinner and where there's a lot of loud noises. I'm a one-to-one person. That's where I feel most comfortable and in more quiet environments. So I think that empaths and highly sensitive people choosing friends that really have an understanding of environments that will just drain us and we won't be having a good time anyway or the next day we'll be paying for it. Right. So Tricia, one thing I wanted to ask you about is this concept of introversion, extroversion. You know, there's the continuum of introverted people and extroverted people. 
And I know that introverted people need more downtime. They tend to be recharged when they're by themselves. And even though they could really enjoy spending time with other people and really value friendships, the time with other people is often feels draining to them after time, and then they need to recharge. Whereas extroverted people tend to get their charges from being around other people. And I, I'm just wondering how this might relate to the whole HSP empath continuum, if, if you see some connections and parallels there and how that fits in. It does. And most highly sensitive people and empaths are introverts. There are extroverted people. However, one thing that I would say is if you are working with someone or you know someone to be more introverted, taking those tests uh, for the highly sensitive person or an empath could either rule out. Since I know a lot of introverts that will watch violent movies, but a highly sensitive person and an empath, that is not something that they would be interested in and it would affect them greatly. Right. Okay. I see the difference there. So there could be introverts who are highly sensitive people and some who are not then. Yes, and that would be clear by some of the things that they do. Sure, sure. Well, we talked about this a little bit before, and I want to spend a little bit more time on it because I think this is really important and very interesting. And that is on the issue of harmful people or unhealthy people for an HSP or an empath. And you talked about narcissists, you talk about psychopaths. I know there's this concept of energy vampires that I came across in some of my reading, all very interesting. So tell us a little bit more who these people are and how an HSP would identify them and what they need to do to protect themselves. Yes, because that will be critical. And I would say if there's one thing, and there's themes that Dr. Judith Orloff mentions of how to detect a narcissist, you know, or someone that's an energy vampire, I know that's a word that's kind of being thrown around lately, not just with empaths necessarily. That's where the self-care pieces come in. So if you're feeling energized and you spend time with someone whether it's a friend or someone you don't know, and then you leave and you find that you're completely exhausted and that you don't want to get out of bed or you're just, you feel as if somehow the life has been just completely sucked out of you. And that has, it happens to me frequently. Like a vampire would. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Instead of sucking the blood out of you, it'd be sucking the life force (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. And so... That's where always knowing where your baseline is, checking in with yourself. And there's not going to be a perfect scenario. But I definitely set out during the day setting intentions or meditation is critical to really get myself as centered as possible. And that way, if I start to notice either my energy being drained or that it's all consuming or it doesn't feel good, that I can step away. I can excuse myself. I can do extreme self-care, which I need to do after being with an energy vampire. And this is something that I had actually heard on one of Dr. Orloff's interviews. Someone admitted to being an energy vampire themselves. And to be honest with you, I think I'm a, a bit guilty of that because what I will do is when I'm around people, I'll pick up so much of their energy, it funnels through me, and then it's I'll purge it out because I'm a talker. 
So I have to learn as I, if I'm talking too much that either I've just absorbed a lot of anxiety from my outside sources or I'm feeling overloaded and I'm putting it out either onto my husband who typically, sorry, he gets it. <laughs> uh, and, and that's been great because he really holds space and then I can hear myself and then I just check back in and see what I need to do for self-care. So Trisha, I'm interested in, you're a therapist and I'm a therapist, and one thing we know about sitting in a therapy chair is that our patients, they need a lot from us, and that's why they're there, and we're happy to give it. But it's sort of a one-way street when it comes to the relationship, because we're in a helping role, and they're, they're in a vulnerable role of asking us for their help. So you, as an empath and a highly sensitive person, how do you manage the relationship there with your therapy patient so that you're okay? That's a great question because it actually is a very hard place to navigate, at least historically for me. And I had to learn the hard way. I've been really blessed by great patients. I have wonderful people. I do a pretty not extensive, but I, I like to talk to my patients before I bring them into my office and just to make sure that it's a fit, that I can, you know, that it's a, a connection. So what I have learned is how many people I need to see a day and per week mm. and how I need to have gaps in between my patients. During that time, it's important of how I'm going to utilize that time, those gaps, which I would say walking, doing some form of movement, meditation. If I look back on when I'm doing my optimal self-care during my week of working with patients, I am thriving best. Now, I will say before I had the awareness that I do to this day, I was seeing way too many patients because I love to do this, mm-hmm. as you know. Yep. And my body started to break down. And that led me in Hawaii to seek out various healers, whether they were local healers, but doing energy work. And that's a huge piece that Dr. Orloff suggests. And I love that coming from a psychiatrist because it's very Eastern and it's absolutely, it saved me. I would be, I believe, chronically ill if I had not found the healers that I found. So I use always seeing some type of healer to clear any energy, to work on my body so I'm not absorbing all of these emotions, and then how I structure my day. So again, really understanding yourself, your needs, and attending to the self-care, asking for help from other people when you need it, which is helpful for you, those kinds of things, it sounds like. Absolutely. We all need that as therapists. Some therapists may not, they can just turn it off. And, and granted, I've learned to turn it off. In my early days, you you take a lot on and then you learn how to not take things home with you. But being an empath, again, that accumulative effect as a therapist, all of a sudden, it could just catch up. So if you're not really strategic as to how you structure your clients each day or how however you want to do it, then I think you know, you will pay the price for it. So I have to really be careful with that. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about the 
problems and issues that could develop that would be difficult and problematic for an HSP or an empath. And I know we've talked a little bit about that earlier. How does an HSP or an empath know that they're in an unhealthy relationship and what that looks like? Well, I would say whether you're an HSP or an empath, client or patient usually knows to some degree. And I think that's our job as therapists is to really provide education and to check out with our clients what they know. What what do they know about an abusive relationship of all kinds? There's various types of abuse, including narcissistic abuse, which is used a lot more these days in, at least in practice, when I talk to my colleagues. So I think educating our clients and that way they can really determine because that's what's most important is for them to know, am I in a healthy or an unhealthy situation? Could you explain a little bit more about narcissistic abuse? What does that look like? So with narcissistic abuse, you see things that are more covert. So gaslighting, you know, all of a sudden the client feels that they're the crazy ones and it becomes this real form of brainwashing where even the client doesn't know where they're beginning and ending. And sometimes the narcissist, you know, or if not often, unless it's an extreme case, can present in a very charming, balanced way. And I think a good clinician can eventually see what's going on. But narcissistic abuse has different features that aren't your typical verbal abusiveness, even though that certainly can be in there for sure. So it's looking at all of these different types of abuse. And if the therapist is picking up on a certain situation might be happening, it's to inquire more about that so that you're doing education. Does it meet criteria for that? That makes sense. Makes sense. Are there any other specific examples of relationship dynamics with an HSP or an empath that you would be on the lookout for that would be unhealthy? Codependency. So codependency would be a big one because that, that need to take care of. Also as empaths, here's another gift, is even in some of the most challenging people or even narcissistic people, I can see that glimmer of light, that glimmer of hope. And sometimes it's there. Often it's it's just that hope that we carry as being an empath. So I think that someone who is an HSP or an empath being really in tune with, is this just hoping? Am I just looking at this with, you know, rose-colored glasses? Or what is the reality of this? You mentioned in your own life some anxiety, depression, what we consider clinical disorders, I suppose. What are the risks with those and how and why do HSPs, empaths develop those? Obviously, this has been a lifetime experience for me. So when I'm feeling the world's pain or I'm feeling my family's pain, whatever it may be, and it could be a neighbor's pain. I mean, that's how you know, an empath really, this is how deep it goes, and you're not aware that it's not yours, then the tendency to resort to all types of addictions is the way to to basically deal with unknown, these unknown feelings. So whether it's food or alcohol or, you know, you name it. I mean, anything's an addiction these, these days. Right. Screen, you know, screen, screens is an addiction. So I think looking at, if you know you're working with an empath, and you're seeing that there's some addiction going on is 
addressing that because you want to implement other skills or tools so that they don't have to resort to that. And also so that they don't have to hold what's not even theirs. Would that be sort of what you'd consider numbing out behavior? Absolutely. Numbing out emotions, numbing out the noise and craziness of the world around you that is stressful and just wanting to have a break from it. Yes. I mean, we're in a culture of numbing out. Dr. Brene Brown talks about this. Right. You know, I mean, this is kind of the, the whole thing of our culture. However, when you assess for a client being an empath or a highly sensitive person, having them check in, why am I numbing out? And really understanding. And a lot of times, they may not know. I mean, that's where you have to become really self-aware. I mean, there's, to give you examples, there's times where I feel fine. I'll be in my home. It'll be a day off, typically, when I'm not distracted by anything. And I'll feel this overwhelming sense of sadness or even fear. And that's my cue to check in because those are those vulnerable moments where I'm needing that downtime. And if I'm not managing that downtime, I think in an optimal way, I'm this open receptacle for things to just fly in. I know it sounds real woo-woo-y, but honestly, if you think about it, we channel so much, whether people who are artists and channeling their writing or painting, but it's like a, a funnel ever is drifting out into the atmosphere. It makes sense that would need to have some good self-awareness of what's going on, because if you're not self-aware, you're being affected by things, not really realizing what's affecting you and why, and might turn to some sort of soothing, self-soothing behavior that may not be a healthy one. But being more aware of how you're feeling and what's going on allows you to be able to address it in a better way for yourself, do the self-care you need to. Yes. And actually, I'd like to share a personal story. And I share this a lot with everyone. And I have permission to actually share this. So I this was years ago. And this was really a defining moment of when I realized, okay, I have these gifts. And it was in Hawaii. And I was spending time with a friend. After work, we would go for these walks. And we went at that time, on that night, we went over to her house and we were just talking story, and, and it was a really nice exchange. And it wasn't that late. It was about 1030 at night, and I left her place. And I, at that time, I was living alone, and it was about 15 minutes away from her place. So as I'm driving from her place to go back to my home, I'm driving up a hill, and I was feeling fine. And all of a sudden, it hit me. I felt this overwhelming sense of fear. And I knew I was safe. I mean, I, with how I was driving, no one could get into the car. And it was a very surreal kind of, something I had never really noticed before. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it, but I happened to be doing a lot of writing at that time. So getting closer to where I lived at the time, I get inside, the fear's kicking in really, really strong. So what I did that night is I wrote extensively. So then the fear made me think that someone was outside trying to get in to my apartment. And I even wrote that in my journal of, gosh, my heart's beating fast. I feel like maybe someone's outside. I was living in a place that had all these windows. And so it was rough. It was really rough because I could not make sense of it. And I hadn't distracted myself because I was so fully into my writing and I was 
at that time exercising and I think living healthfully. So there was no distractions. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I'll just put all the safety mechanisms in place, kept my windows shut, which, you know, at that time <laughs> was a little bit cooler in Hawaii, but that, you know, that warms it up a bit. And I actually kept my fan off. And at seven o'clock the next morning, my friend called and she said, you'll never believe what happened. And she said, after you left my place, I had this overwhelming sense of fear that someone was outside of my apartment. And unfortunately, there was. And this, yeah, and and talk about, people get chills when they hear this story. And so someone got onto her lanai. And how that happened, we still don't know to this day. And it was such an exercise, I think, for each of us. I mean, it was this really powerful moment. And she had her own lessons that she, you know, obviously I won't share about that, but that she took away. But I immediately drove over and I handed her my journal. And she said, everything you wrote was what I experienced. Wow. I know. And we looked at each other and I said, how long have I been living in fear over other people's experiences? And and she, I I wouldn't consider her an empath, but highly intuitive, very sensitive. And that moment, that day, I think we decided to really let fear take a backseat because it wasn't our stuff. It's almost this defining moment of she was fine. She handled it very well and she was safe, luckily. And I was fine too. It wasn't mine, but that was a very powerful story and experience to really tell me, okay, this is what you have the ability to do and it needs to stop. Otherwise you're going to live in a chronic state of anxiety and a chronic state of fear. That's an amazing story. And so I'm wondering if you were working with a patient, an HSP, who had the same kind of anxieties, fears, and you were helping that person learn how to manage and deal with them in a healthy way. You're talking about having the fear take a back seat and not letting it control you, I suppose. How does one do that? Well, obviously, I... I do tell that story a lot if it's if I feel it will be helpful. And that really brings this concept home, especially if I am working with an empath or a highly sensitive person. So we can use that as a story to have them check in. Is this fear yours? Is this fear not? And really work with that. And then maybe we can, you know, explore some stories that they have where they picked up on something and nothing happened. But it would be explaining how much we do absorb to the point of a whole entire evening. Sure. It's really providing that education of this is how deep this goes. This is how far it goes with an empath. And where do you want to draw these lines? And what would be the coping tools so that, that story was just a de- defining moment and, and really, I'm not sure if I knew of empath at that time, maybe not, maybe more so from other sources, not necessarily Dr. Judith Orloff's work, but I started to see, oh, wow, I have a lot of these abilities and I need to learn how to manage them. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is in your particular case, it was this experience you had and understanding yourself and internalizing uh, fears and anxieties. But I think for a lot of people, like therapy can often be sort of a 
a linear path in many ways where people learn and gain insights and improve linearly over time. And then every now and then there's sort of like an aha moment where there's just a quantum leap where just something just clicks and makes sense and is so helpful for that person to push themselves further. They just, they just make that leap in understanding and insight for themselves. That sounds like that's kind of what happened to you in that moment. Exactly. And I love when clients do that. Me too. And that's it. That's like why I live for that. I mean, that's the aha moment of like, oh my gosh, I, it's so exciting to see that. I mean, that's, yeah, it is why we do what we do. Right. Yeah. And, and I think also just to plug our field a little bit uh, for those seeking therapy or in therapy, sometimes these gains that people make are nonlinear, that you have to stick it out for a while and it can be hard and you're slugging through it. And then it all just sort of clicks at some point and people just make that leap. Yes. Yes. I know. It's so hard because I've been in therapy all my life. I mean, you know, to be honest with you at various points. And I think that not even having this information or not having someone like Dr. Judith Orloff, who's a psychiatrist and an empath, and she's also um, a professor at UCLA. I mean, you know, someone with that type of credentials that could bring that scientific piece and yet be empathic or be an empath herself and bring all of this education and continue to build on, you know, the education. She's constantly doing interviews, which I would always suggest to watch. Just that always helps. Helps. Those are reminders of, oh, yeah, I need to look out for this or sure. I need to use this. Here's an idea. Now, she's been doing this for a long time, so she has that advantage. That was one thing that as I was looking into her work, she's really good at what she does. But for people just discovering this, it is something where you still it's definitely a practice, a daily practice for life. It will be. Guys, I say that. I mean, that's like, ah. But every day, you know, there's there's opportunities to learn with that. And also she emphasizes, Dr. Orloff emphasizes, seeing it as a gift makes it exciting. It makes it so people love these gifts. You know, they know that I have this and they know I have the intuition. And it's something that, yeah, is just such a part of me. Yeah, and I'm sure that with your patients, it is a gift because it's something that helps you really be able to connect with them in a way that they may not have had that experience with another person before. I do feel that. And I get I get great feedback. Sometimes I feel, and not to say you're not like this because I know you're great, I feel like the advantage it gives me is that I feel sometimes 10 steps ahead no, having this information. So a lot of times, you know, the feelings that I get or the access to information that I get or just even that deep caring for my, you know, patients is, it's very authentic. There's nothing superficial about it. I don't do this for the money. You know, I, I really don't. Right. I do this because it really is my soul's work. Yeah. So, because it's a, lo- it's a lot to take on, you know, and I'm getting older and, you know, I'm trying to balance things out. But it, I really know that to see my clients do the work that they do, and I'm sure, as you were just saying, those aha moments or these transformations, it puts me to shame. You know, I'm like, wow, and that's fine. I will, I, I want people to succeed. So it's, it is really powerful doing this type of work. And then being an empath, you know, I think even brings it, adds a whole other dimension to it. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question about 
the world around us. I was thinking about this when I was preparing to interview you today. And just as sort of like a greater picture, like the world can be kind of depressing. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I uh, mean, there's a lot going on. Yes. I mean, like think of any number of catastrophic things that could befall our planet. Just take your pick. There's so many of them on a huge like annihilation of our population and species down to just every time you turn on the news, somebody's being harmed, something bad is happening to somebody. There's just so much suffering and the pain in the world. There's just so much that happens all the time. I mean, it is hard for just about anybody to manage and cope with the world now the way it is. How do we deal with this stuff? And especially as an HSP, how do you deal with it? Yes. Oh, I have lots of great things to say about this. Well, first of all, empaths, I believe, are heal or here to heal the planet. We are here mm. to heal the planet because we are so in tune. But we can't save the entire planet. So it is having that clear boundary of what can I do to play my part, you know, whether that's environmental or whatever. I mean, there's different types of empaths and that gets a little bit more involved. And I'll, you know, reference drjudithorloff.com, her website to figure out what you are, which type of subcategory. So so there's, you know, earth empaths, there's animal empaths, and it, it goes on and on. So I do know, though, is there is a high number, and I do believe that's why this is being so mainstreamed with empathy, you know, the empaths and the HSPs, is that we're here to, to make it a better place. So that was helpful just knowing that. Now, in terms of navigating the world, I have rules for myself. So I don't watch the news. Mm. What I did for quite a long time was I... The only thing, five days a week, I would look at the skim. Are you familiar with that no. here? So it's it's some, I think it's a couple of women. I Don't quote me on who does this, but they're really funny. And they give you just some bullet points in this very just skimmed type of way so that you're not clueless as to what's happening in the world. And they put it out Monday through Friday. And you can click on if you want more information about a particular event that happens. So... I chose to go that route. One of my healers said, really make sure that you're not being exposed to the news and all of that. So it's so hard because you can walk into somewhere like a gym. The news is everywhere. It is. So I have a rule that I will look at the skim. And the last few weeks, to be honest with you, I have not looked at the skim at all. In fact, I made a conscious effort and it's really hard. I think I said to several people, my husband and a few of my friends, if something absolutely major happens and I need to know about it, do you mind just letting me know? Because I know it's not going to, I mean, it it affects my husband too, you know, and, uh, and it does, it affects everyone. So how much news time you get. So for me, that's off limits because it does not serve me. I'm not going to be helping people be their best selves or I'm not helping myself be my best self if I'm inundating myself with toxic information. I try to be really careful. For example, we just, in Washington State, we just had to vote. Well, I guess we had to vote everywhere. But I remember, you know, that would be something we're just looking into the several different sources that gave me the information that I needed to make those voting, you know, voting choices. It is tough. I would say creating really strong boundaries for anyone right now in our world and also seeing this 
we all say this, or we kind of have this joke, my husband and I, you know, the world's going to a hell in a handbasket. Sure, a lot of people feel that way. Well, absolutely. But my grandparents said that. I knew my great-grandparents as well. I'm sure we all said that in each generation. And, you know, who gosh, hopefully it's not true. However, what can we do to make this a better place Mm -hmm. every day? If that's just smiling to someone, if it's being kind, allowing someone who's in a hurry to get in front of the line. So it's those gestures of kindness and being just really compassionate that everyone right now is in a state of fear. They're in a state of anxiety at the, the world, the climate of the world. I've never been busier. In fact, I really had to cut back on my own work to preserve my own self because of what's going on, you know, the last few years in the world. It, it really entered my, I'm sure it's entering all people's therapy rooms in terms of the disconnect with the political climate and all these other things. And so it really is, how do you set really good boundaries and create something for yourself that makes a difference in a good way. Mm-hmm. So again, self-care, not indulging in toxic information that's Mm-mm. not going to help in any way. I love the idea about limiting or cutting out news because for the most part, overindulging in the news isn't going to help a person become more informed. It's just going to stress people out, right? Exactly. And what I say, it's always there. It always is there, but there's that addictive element. You're getting that stimulus. And so there is a bit of a withdrawal, you know, even I think to myself, oh, I should, you know. So it is. I'm not saying that's difficult not to look at the news, um, but setting those strict boundaries about what you're going to expose yourself to, to be, you know, healthy. Sure. Well, we're getting toward the end of the questions I had set up for you for this interview, and I really enjoyed hearing your responses. And I guess I just want to leave with a last question, if you have any final thoughts, insights, advice on this subject that we haven't covered today that you think would be really helpful or critical for people to know about this about this very interesting topic. Well, I would highly encourage people to check out the gurus on this, which is for highly sensitive person, it's Dr. Elaine Aaron. Her husband is also doing brain research to really support a lot of this. So Dr. Elaine Aaron's website is again, hsperson.com. And also Dr. Judith Orloff, and it's easy, drjudithorloff.com. She has so much on her website. I mean, it's rich with so much information, and her books are great. She recently came out with Thriving as an Empath, and there's a journal that I think really should, I think it's meant to accompany it. They both go together. So Thriving as Empath, it has a daily, so you can just work with that day. And she has great stuff written for that day. And then you can use the journal. She has all this creative stuff, yet insightful things to use that you could carry in your purse. So those are her two latest books that I know she's promoting a lot. You know, she didn't send me to promote this. I actually am promoting it because of my own, you know, but if it weren't for her work, I would not be where I am today. I think I feel less shamed 
I feel like it's okay to share my gifts. It's funny because some people are like, oh, you're really open with your gifts. And I'm like, yep. You know, I, she, you know, I've just always been an open person anyway, but she gave me permission, you know, to put this on mainstream because she's out there really working hard to promote this. And so using all of her tools, Dr. Judith Orloff's tools, Dr. Elaine Aaron's tools, Dr. Elaine Aaron, I know has two documentaries. One is called Sensitive. And that's also great to share with your friends and family because it really shows what a person feels when they're highly sensitive and in terms of an empath maybe Judith would come out with with a book or a a movie but all of her work books and uh, blog and website so I would highly suggest those resources and also because they do have the quiz Mm -hmm. so that way you can distinguish am I a highly sensitive person or am I an empath and that way you know where you stand so those would be to great resources for clinicians and the public to the feel that this resonates, to really look into, to identify, oh yeah, that's me or that's not, or I kind of sit in the middle, but what's this all about? Uh, there might be some people that are really strongly you know, intuitive and this might help manage some of those skills too. So those are two great resources. I also think seeking a therapist to, who's very open to this because people can share things with me and I'm not going to think it's crazy. Uh, you so know. what would uh, somebody who was seeking therapy who thought they might be HSP or an empath, how would they seek out a therapist that they would think would be a good match for them? So I know I put on my psychology today, I added it. Maybe one day psychologytoday.com yeah. could add this onto their specialties. But you have a place where you can enter two additional or several additional specialties. So I did put highly sensitive person and I put empath so people can see that. However, when someone's seeking out therapy and they call the therapist, they can say, I am confident I am an empath or I'm pretty sure I am or I'm a highly sensitive person. Is that something you work with or are familiar with? And if they say, I have no idea or I have no idea, but you know what? I'm very open-minded and I am I can work with you on that. You know, like you were very open to me sharing this with you. Mm-hmm. And you're just always really good at being open. So I want to say that. No, thank they, you. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, you have been great. You've always been very thank good you. to me. So, you know, someone who's not even specializing in this can really hold space. So it sounds to me like the person can just have a basic conversation with a therapist and get a sense from that person, whether it feels comfortable or not. Exactly. So if you're an empath or you're very sensitive, you'll be very in tune if that therapist right. is responsive. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll be just an, an empathetic connection right there on the phone, whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Tricia. It's been great to have you here. Oh, thank you so much, Erin. No, I'm so excited to share this. It really... I am so passionate about it. Obviously, I've lived it, you know, and it's it hasn't been clearly easy, but, you know, the rewards have been huge. And so I'm excited to share and get this out so people know more about this. So I appreciate you being open to having me on and also sharing this topic. Yes, it's been wonderful. I'll be sure to share some links to the websites that you talked about, some of these materials with Dr. Orloff and Dr. Dr. Aaron. Yes. 
We'll put those on the website. I have a page on my website for my podcast and an accompanying blog. And so all of this materials and links, we'll make sure to put them on there so people can get directed to those materials to help them with this. Yay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. So once again, uh, wonderful time spent here with Tricia Burke, licensed clinical social worker who is enjoying her time here in Hawaii where she's lived before and coming here now from Washington State. Have a great rest of your time in Hawaii and safe travels back home when you're ready to go. Thank you, Erin. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.